Ladies and gentlemen, if you like the Smug Film Podcast, do yourself a favor and head over to patreon.com slash smugfilm, where we've got a bunch of great rewards if you donate to the show. For just $1 a month, you'll get a bonus mini episode of the show every Monday in your inbox, as well as access to all the past mini episodes. These episodes will never be available on iTunes or smugfilm.com or anywhere else. The only way to hear them is by donating $1 a month through patreon.com slash smugfilm. For $5 a month, you'll get the bonus episodes. Plus, we will do a 30-second plug of whatever you want on one episode a month. Your movie, your small business, how cool you are, your Twitter handle, whatever it is, we'll plug it. For $10 a month, you'll get the bonus episodes. Plus, we'll do a 30-second plug of whatever you want on every single episode of the show. That's four episodes a month. That's an incredible deal. So once again, the URL is patreon.com slash smugfilm. Head on over there today, and we look forward to your kind donation. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hello. And Jenna Ipcar. Hello. Hello. All right, so John, you saw In the Heart of the Sea, and uh, you have things to say about it. As I've seen on Twitter, you've been uh, very uh, Yeah, it passionate. fucking sucked, yo. Yeah. It fucking sucked. Now, wait, this is very interesting, too, because I think this is the number one movie maybe John's been waiting for all year. Probably, yeah. And... John, if you haven't listened to previous episodes or met John or looked at his Twitter or briefly, vaguely looked in his direction, he loves Moby Dick. This guy's all about the dick. Yeah, it's my favorite comma book. Moby. I'm gonna, Com- let's stick comma Moby. I'm going to breeze right past that and just say it's my favorite <laughs> book by far. And Melville in general, I'm very interested in. I've read like a lot of his other stuff and biographies of him and all that. I think he was... Super interesting. And I also just have like a weird fascination with nautical disasters, even aside from Moby Dick. You know, like, yeah, I could pass a day just reading about different shipwrecks. And the 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 story of the Essex actually is one of my favorite shipwreck stories because it's fucking crazy. So, like, if anybody was primed for this movie, it was probably me. Yeah, you're the target audience. And I love the book it's based on. I love In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick, which I'm just going to say right now, just get that book. Get it out of the library. Get it out of the bookatorium. Get it wherever you get your books. Put it on a Kindle. Put it on a Mac pad. Just whatever you're doing. Get and read In the Heart of the Sea because it's still one of the great nonfiction books of the of the decade or so. And the movie just sucked fucking anything. It sucked face. Sucked anything. Sucked D. Sucked whatever. Whatever you got, it was sucking it. Face D... A? Did it suck A? Oh my God. Oh my God. So much A. Do you have a main complaint? I have many complaints. Here's here's the thing with it. I don't mind a movie based on fact that'll fictionalize if they're making the story more interesting. Um, even if it's a story that I, you know, know closely and like a lot and think the original story would probably be better. You know, like glory. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff has changed yeah. in that to make the story more interesting. That's fine. Solid movie. Yeah. Um, Or like the right stuff, you know, they move stuff around to make it kind of a a leaner story, which is fine. In this case, they fictionalize a shitload to make it worse, Hmm. which I think is totally inexcusable. They fictionalize any moment of moral crisis in the actual story. They fictionalize away so they don't have to deal with basically. 
And then they do this weird thing where um, they start to try to tie the whole thing into Herman Melville and into Moby Dick, which it's really only tangentially related to at best. Mm. It was one of many influences on Melville. The story of the Essex was one. Uh, the the story of Mocha Dick, the the other unrelated Mocha crazy Dick. whale. Yeah, that, that was a real like whale. That sounds like the 70s like blaxploitation Mocha no, Dick. No, that was a real whale who was... Um, he was sort of hunting the South Pacific and it was like the famous giant whale everyone was trying to catch. And um, Melville's own life, his own time on a, on a whaler and his own time, you know, living in the Marquesas. There's a, there's a ton of stuff that went into Moby Dick. It wasn't just the story of the whale ship Essex. But basically what they do is whenever they're uncomfortable with the story that really happened, they start to graft in these unrelated scenes from Moby Dick on top of them mm. to cover the holes which is operating from a bad center in two ways. Basically they're finding a way to destroy two books at once instead of just one. Cause it doesn't go well together. The story of the Essex is that um, a whaler went out and it got struck by a sperm whale off the coast of Mexico, the, the Pacific coast of Mexico and it sank. And um, the, the surviving crew members had to take to the little whale boats cause the ship sank. And they were like a few, Maybe like a few hundred miles, I think, from some other island. I want to say Samoa, but that doesn't sound right. That might be the other other island. But they were off the coast of this island that they didn't want to row to because they were told there were cannibals on the island, which wasn't true. So they rowed 2,000 miles to the next nearest island. Mm. And along the way, they were at sea for like 100 days or something, and they had no provisions. So they started eating each other. So, like, in their quest to avoid the cannibals, they became cannibals. Right. That's the real story of the Essex. Almost none of that sentence is in the movie. Really? None of it. Basically, the way the movie goes is a whale sinks their ship, and then they take to the little whale boats, and they're rowing back to Mexico, and the whale is chasing them, trying to kill them. What? That's Which really is silly. mad childish. And then they graft all of it to sort of tie it together in some deluded sense of fan service for a book that has, like, maybe 10,000 people really have read it. They have this frame story where Herman Melville shows up at the last survivor's house and like gives his life savings to hear the story and then turn it into his book. And the implication then is that um, Melville plagiarized all of Moby Dick, like in their weird tribute to Moby Dick. That's horrible. And then they had it all that he he plagiarized it all to impress Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was um, this like ideal of a writer for Melville, who he thought he never could be like. In real life, they were close friends. He's the person that Moby Dick was dedicated to. And like, they're pretty sure Melville and Hawthorne were banging. Hmm. So there's a much more interesting story of how the book came to be. Yeah. First of all, and there's a much more interesting story of the whale ship Essex, but they get thrown into this mix and just both become shittier along the way because they, you know what it is? It's filmmaking completely without integrity. There's, hmm. It has no guts of any kind. Anytime you have to present anything slightly unpalatable, to the to the viewer they back away from it and they start to fictionalize it and then they do it in this really sleazy way where in order to get it done they turn the whales from vulnerable prey animals into like sea monsters yeah. and they're going on and on like at the beginning herman melville's talking about how attracted he is to the sea monster of the whale and like basically you get the sense that the whole thing was made from the perspective of like somebody who read the synopsis for moby dick and thought ahab was the hero and it's a movie about chasing down the whale because you have to destroy the whales, which is such a massive misreading of, first of all, history, and second of all, Moby Dick. 
neither of which anywhere approach that concept of the whale. I mean, Moby Dick is basically half the book is is marine biology, just studying this very fascinating animal that's um, being torn apart. And the most beautiful parts of the book are when um, they, they're in a, uh, a feeding ground for the whales and you can see the calves and the pregnant whales. And, and I mean, it, it's very um, humane in its treatment of the animals. It treats them as it should, like animals. And of course, so does Philbrick in the book because it's, you know, nonfiction. You can't hide from the fact that whales aren't monsters. And what it reminds me of, I, I think it's borderline immoral because it reminds me of that movie that I talked about on one of the older podcasts that I think is the most immoral movie I've ever seen outside of, you know, actual Nazi propaganda. The one Killers of the Sea about the guy, the fisherman who's going around killing all these animals to right. try to save the fish. You know, like he'll find an octopus and be like, this one's evil and he'll kill it <laughs> to try to save the fish that it's that eating. Crazy you know? fucking dude. Yeah, yeah, just like drunkenly laying waste to an ecosystem. It reminds me of that. And it reminds me of the story of um, when Jaws came out, which is, you know, presented as fiction. Peter Benchley regrets, as far as I know, to this day, even writing Jaws because of the ecological damage it caused. Because it did the same thing where it presented sharks as, you know, monsters instead of animals. And I, I thought we were beyond this now. Yeah, similar you know? thing with, with uh, wolves, if I remember, but in literature. Greg DeLiso did a documentary called Canada's Best Kept Secret, which is about this uh, guy, um, I think it's R.H.R. Lawrence, or I've, it's one of those initial... H.R. Puffin stuff? That's exactly yeah, what I was going to say. It's Puffin stuff, wrote all these books about um, uh, wolves. And uh, he was basically, he was trying to save the reputation of wolves because wolves kept being depicted as these like yeah. fierce killers of man. And the, the truth was the opposite. And, and they... Yeah, I mean, they're animals. Yeah. They're very smart animals. And yeah. I mean, I, I just, you know, it's 2015. I thought we were beyond... I, th I thought cinema had gotten a little more sophisticated than, you know, presenting an animal like that. Yeah. Especially the whale as it's being hunted by whale boats, you know? Mm. And they cut in all these little tiny bits from Moby Dick about um, Moby Dick. One of the most fascinating elements of it is it could see 150 years ago, it could see the problems we have now coming, you know, the, the, the problems we have with resources, because really what it's all about is it's all about um, the looming fear that we are running out of whale oil and we're running out, you know, we're, we're hunting them faster than they're, than they're mating. And it's, it's sort of like a substrat in the book, but it's all over the book and it's all over this sense that like you can't, once you begin, you can't stop. Mm. Moby Dick is all about, you know, once you begin something, you can't, you can't get off the roller coaster. And um, I don't know, Ron Howard's movie, it's, it's all about, you know, like, let's just take them out and let's get the oil. We need that whale oil. So it presents all these tiny little cues from Moby Dick about how, you know, how precious the whale oil is. There's all these close-ups of them lighting things and, and uh, you know, lighting candles and lighting uh, the, the lanterns outside and everything. And it does it in this way that's almost like vaguely triumphant about the about what they've done. But one of the most famous lines in Moby Dick is for every drop of whale oil, a drop of man's blood was spilled. Mm. So light your candles carefully. And um, there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, like you can see it's just this bastardized version of Melville that that hammers this book into something it wasn't. It hammers it into, I mean, it hammers it into Jaws, basically. Yeah. But without any of the character sophistication of Jaws, it reminds me of when um, the imitation game, in order to pay tribute right. to Alan Turing, like sort of implied that he was a communist spy. 
which was not the case. It was absolutely untrue. It was totally unfounded rumor, but like it was kind of good formula drama. So they wedged it in. So like in their attempt to pay tribute to him, they created some new slander for him. And this one for their attempt to pay tribute to Melville and to, you know, to the, the real people who lived and died on the Essex, they basically slander them all. Did you get the sense that the, so, so you got the sense that the uh, whale was the bad guy. Did you get the sense that the people were portrayed as good guys? Depends. Um, the people were portrayed as pat good guys or pat bad guys, which they really weren't. You know, I mean, the the trouble, what happened to the Essex happened because the captain wasn't very good. And it's hard to escape the premise that if the first mate had been the captain, it probably would have turned out okay. It might have still sank, but, you know, like it wouldn't have been the unmitigated people eating their own nephew disaster that it really was. Uh, so... You know, they portray the captain as a villain and the first mate, which is Hemsworth, as a hero. And they're probably not too far off the real historical record with that. But I mean, everybody's so um, nobody has a pulse, you know, everybody. It's like everybody's there with a mission. You know, nobody has a life. They're just I'm here to be the good guy. I'm here to be the instigator right. in this scene. I'm here to be the bad guy. You know, there's no through line for any conflict in it, which is a shame because one of the more interesting things in Philbert's book is he really starts to examine the. Uh, social and historical forces that like put everybody there because the first guy to die and get eaten was a black guy and there weren't a lot of black guys on the ship so he starts to look at it and he's like well you know was this racial and and the conclusion he comes to is there was nothing there was no behavior in the lifeboat that um that was like racially motivated they didn't you know they didn't do anything there to to treat this guy poorly and cause him to die sooner but the life that he was leading on nantucket and in the in the the ship in the Essex itself, you know, he got the worst births. They got less food. You know, like basically his whole life was building up to him being the first to die because he had been um, subtly mistreated for his entire life. Mm. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff like that in there. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff in the book about you know the people from Nantucket versus the off islanders, which they try to explore in the movie. But I mean, it's like it's the most ham fisted and like there's, there's absolutely no finesse to any of it. It's, it's really, and it's on top of that. I mean, it's just ugly. It looks very dark by the trailer. It's just very, um, it's a movie about the, the excesses of human survival and, you know, like the grim realities and the gritty life on a whale ship. And it, you know, it looks like nobody ever got wet making it. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it looks very, it might as well be an animated film. It looks very artificial the color grading is so obnoxious. Everything is like blue or like piss yellow, you know, like it's hideous. And um, he keeps, Ron Howard, I guess, keeps dressing it up with these like fake GoPro shots all over it. Really? Weird. Yeah. And you can tell, I mean, it, it's this like lame attempt at trying to t- trying to ground it all and make it more, um, you know, tactile. But really what it comes off as is fake GoPro shots in a soundstage trying to hide the fact that you're making a movie about survival that's taking the path of least resistance every single step of the way. It's uh Yeah, that's really, bad. you know, to is there like an unspoken rule that period pieces they have to be shot in a specific way. If you do it with this sort of like brand new technology like that with these angles that like are so of right now, it really takes you out of it. I don't mind that at all if it's done well. I think when, does, a when lot is it of done room. well? I'm just trying to think about it. It wasn't Linden. It wasn't done well in like Public Enemies. 
like uh, that all that DV stuff was. I didn't like, mind the the DV in Public Enemies. You, you didn't. I didn't love it, but I didn't mind it. But I mean, you know, like. But Barry Lyndon, great Barry, example of it. Yeah, going Barry well. Lyndon. There's that all that handheld, and there's uh, there's a lot of um, the, those long slow zooms, and a lot of stuff that at the time was very new techniques, and for that matter, early Altman. I mean, Mash is all new techniques and new kinds of um, filmmaking and Buffalo Bill is too. But Barry Lyndon kind of offsets it with the candlelight. Whereas like, maybe, it, maybe it's just the CGI with the GoPros. The candlelight the... was the most innovative part of Barry Lyndon. Yeah. That was, the, I mean, they uh, had lenses invented by NASA just yeah. so they could shoot that way. Right. Yeah. I, but that's it. It somehow does work. So it's, it's interesting. I'm trying to think of even a GoPro somehow even working in like a, just, you know, a movie that's not meant to be set in 2015. I think there's a lot of room to make it happen. I mean, maybe it's because I'm a Peter Watkins fan, you know, and I like uh, Culloden in the war game where it's all, you know, they don't hide the artifice of any of it. And he's having um, news reporters come and interview people in the Battle of Culloden in like, you know, 15 or 1600, whatever, or uh, Paris Commune when he does the same thing in uh, the 1890s. I think there's a lot of, and for that matter, I think there were parts, not all of it, because most of it was terrible. But there were parts of Les Mis where you could see the potential in the approach. You know, you could you could see the potential in in this very um, unmoored, very now and almost slapdash feeling. You know, like you just picked up a camera and pointed it right. somewhere where you thought the action was. I think that you know, there's but Les Mis wasn't there's so to heavily make that work. CGI either though. I, I think maybe it's just C- I just hate CGI. <laughs> it comes to- though it depends. Obviously, like sometimes if it's in the background, it works, but. I would say the probably 95% of CGI you don't even know is there. So mm. when people say people say they hate CGI, really what they're saying is they hate CGI that makes itself readily apparent. And right. that's the trouble with um, In the Heart of the Sea. I mean, I'm sure there's probably literally thousands of CGI shots in the background that you have no way of knowing are CGI. But like with the whales, it would look just as bad if it were done stop motion or anything because the problem wasn't the technology the problem was the philosophy behind it yeah the problem was the idea of of doing monsters instead of doing animals which is also why jurassic world looks shittier than jurassic park it's the same technique but spielberg is you know they're moving like animals and they're thinking like animals and they're behaving like animals yeah that was the goal that was that was what they were they they become so performative in uh jurassic world and in stuff like this you know it's they're not living things. They're they're MacGuffins, mm. which I think is sleazy. I, th- I think it's, you know, the oceans are basically destroyed now. You know, how many thousands of them are left now? And, you know, he has one of the rare few opportunities to make a movie about, about a thing that happened that was extraordinary and very one of a kind. And a part of it is an animal that's extraordinary and very one of a kind. And in both cases... Anything that would distinguish the story, he pulls right out of it and replaces with the schlock that Moby Dick was a response to. Mm. It's cowardly filmmaking, I think, really. And and what it is, is, I mean, nobody's ever going to make another movie about this. You know, nobody's going to get another shot to tell the story of the Essex. And probably nobody's even really going to get a shot to tell Moby Dick. And he destroyed both for reasons I still cannot, for the life of me, figure out why they felt like they had to tie it into Moby Dick that tightly. Because it's not. And the book isn't. And there's no reason to do it except in this deluded, like, post-Marvel universe where we think name recognition is so important that it's worth tanking your movie for. Mm. I mean, is anybody going to see this movie because they think it's related to Moby Dick that wouldn't see it if they thought it was just a really good one-off sea adventure? 
Most people don't give a shit about Moby Dick. Yeah. I know maybe 20 people in my life who've read it and probably 15 of them, you know, they love it. And I, I mean, the, the people I saw it with both of them, all three of us, it was our favorite book, but you know, it's, it's a niche, you yeah. know, it does, it's, Right, it's it not, we're not statistically significant. It's not Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. you know. So there's no reason to pretend. Yeah, there's no reason to pretend you have to tie this thing to this unrelated fucking book and drag two things into the mud because you're too much of a coward to make the actual movie that you bought the rights to. When's the last time they had a new C movie? Before this one? I don't even know. It's like you get one like every six or seven years, it feels like. I'm trying yeah. to I guess the Pirates last one- 4. Well, I guess, right, I guess if, if we want to count Pirates of the Caribbean, which I suppose we should. And then before that, I feel like it was Master and Commander. And then I'm really hard-pressed to think of any. I mean, they come, you know, every decade or so. You get, you but get that's the bounty. The sh- that's and- the shame of it, is that, like, it takes them so long to come up with one. And then when they come out with a lame one, you're like, oh, yeah, because now I have to wait so, five more years. They're so hard to make. I guess so. You know, look at Titanic. A- they're just so yeah. hard to make. Yeah. Life Aquatic, water, you could... Uh- Throw in there because I right. remember them saying that the shoot was was really really grueling. They were like really fucking out there, and it, apparently it was shooting horrible. with water is one of the hardest yeah. things you can do. You know, every every water movie they say that about Life of Pi was like impossible. The Abyss was impossible. All three versions of Mutiny on the Bounty were impossible. Jaws they didn't think they were going to be able to finish. Titanic they didn't think they were going to be able to finish. So like it's the type of thing where you you have a very large plate you're stepping up to with it. And Ron Howard, I mean, he did Apollo 13, you know, he he can do it. But this, you know, it's like he walked up to it and just didn't want to be bothered doing the fucking work. It's a waste of two great stories. And the worst part about it is everybody who's going to walk into it now is going to come out and it's like imitation. They're going to come, imitation game. They're going to come out and they're going to think that was it. Yeah. That was how it happened. How it happened was Herman Melville went to visit this dude and he stole the whole thing <laughs> from him and he did it to impress a writer he never met. And whales were chasing these people down for the sport of the hunt for like months. And it's fucking stupid. It's just childish. Was this movie produced by the Japanese uh, whaling committee? (laughs) (laughs) It's just childish, childish filmmaking. Luckily, it's getting trashed pretty much. You know, luckily it's it's getting what it deserves. It probably has the Rotten Tomatoes percentage that it, it should have. Well, uh, the the bad side of that is now nobody's going to read the book. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Which is a tremendous like, book. Yeah. We're not going to have another sea movie for Let's the next 10 years. Let's get that title out there again. In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrook. It's an extraordinary book. Yeah, go. Extraordinary. And go it's pick short. that one it's just, up. You know, it's like three 300 something. It's a quick yeah. read. Wonderful book. Just an incredible real story that they ruined to the ground. Burnt it to the goddamn ground. Damn shame. I saw uh, this past week. I saw the gift. Have you guys seen that one yet? Nah. Wait, that's the the one. What's that one about? Well, there's there's the 2000 The Gift, which is a good Sam Raimi like kind of mystery thriller. That movie's sweet. That movie's underrated. I like that one a lot. That's that's real good. That's that's also that's the classic example I always pull out whenever anyone says like, "Oh, Keanu Reeves is the same in every movie. He can't act. You know, he's like all wooden." It's like in that movie, he gives great performance that isn't very Keanu Reevesy. Like he he disappears into the role. Uh, it's just a it's overall really good movie. People who say somebody is the same in every movie and it means they can't act don't know what acting is. Yeah, I <laughs> I, I the hate job that. isn't to be doing impressions. Yeah, it's not not everybody doesn't have to be Peter Sellers to be a good actor. Yeah, well. it's not it's not fucking a comedy club. You're standing up there and you're doing your goddamn. <laughs> Sean Connery. That's yeah. not acting. That's not gaining or losing weight. Otherwise, Frank Caliendo would be the greatest actor of all yeah. time. 
there is something to be said about, you know, like the people that fall into the old Pacino or the Jack Nicholson. That's, I think that's that a different groove. phenomenon. Yeah. Though. I mean, that, that's what I think people are talking about with Keanu Reeves. Cause he is for the most part, he's, he just doesn't deliver. And then sometimes he really does. I don't know if it's because he doesn't like certain material. Then you have to assume it's the project, though, and the, the energy right. with the director. He's probably and the needs and the other. to be directed. Yeah. You know what it is? People who think that about acting don't know what directing is. Mm -hmm. Like, you can have a, an actor who's a really good actor, but needs a strong director. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, it's like Bruce Willis and M. Night. They, I think they had a certain magic together that I, I haven't seen in other Bruce Willis performances. Yeah. You he, need somebody who can actually, you know, help them get what they need yeah. to get that out of them. You know, some actors, I guess, aren't self-starters. They need, they need directing. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, I'm talking about the recent, the gift, which is the Joel Edgerton. He's a Australian actor and this is his first, uh, directed written film. And he also stars in it as well. Didn't He's, he play Ramses in that? Uh, yeah. How did they get a guy named Joel? play a guy named Ramses. How did that happen? Well, in this one, he's playing a guy named Gordo, which is another... Oh, it's the Gordo movie. Oh, is it a, a Stand By Me sequel? <laughs> it actually, you know what? You could close your eyes and sort of dull your brain and pretend it's a sequel to Stand By Me because it is about young, young kids doing something and then they revisit later on and we're trying to figure out what the fuck went on when they were kids. It's like we're seeing them as adults now and we're trying what to they do? piece things together. Well, you have to watch Isn't the movie. Is that, that the twist, what they did? Yeah, it's a, it's a twisty movie. It's a, It's got twists. It's got turns. It's kind of, I would classify it as, you know, most people are just going to call it a psychological thriller. I'll call it a dumb guy psychological thriller because <laughs> that I feel like that's its own subgenre because... You know, after I saw this movie, I'll, I'll I'll tell you in more detail what I thought of it. But after I saw it, I looked up on Wikipedia, just reading the page for it. And every movie that Joel Edgerton lists as his influence for this film, I could have, you know, blindly just wrote them down as I was watching the movie and then checked it against the list. And it would be the exact same thing. He's like Fatal Attraction, the Vengeance Trilogy. And uh, Michael Haneke's like cachet. It's like, yeah, you saw all those movies and then you went off and you wrote your little screenplay. <laughs> the The movie itself, I was very impressed with the vast majority of it. It's one of those movies where if it had come out in like the 90s or something, it would have just been total white noise because there's so many of those like suspense movies that came out in a particular time that just don't come out with the same frequency anymore. So it kind of, I can see why it has such a high rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's like, I think it's like 92 or 95%, which is, you know, extraordinary for a film of this type. Man, you love that Rotten Tomatoes today. Yeah. I've been, I've been citing it today because I think it, I think it is interesting because I think if it was just, Tomatoes. if it, if it was a different decade that it came out, it would have a very different reception from the critics. Everyone would be like, Oh, it's just the same thing all over again. But it came out in a really good patch of time where there isn't really anything competing with it within like the last couple of years or the next couple of years or whatever. It's just this patch. That's how I felt about the descendants that one with George Clooney. Yeah. Like people were just starved for a movie about, you know, people. Yeah, it was a perfectly primed, perfectly released film. And uh, the majority of the gift, it's better than you would think. The acting is way better than you'd think. It's uh, it's Jason Bateman, and he's giving a 
straight up dramatic performance. And he there are scenes where he's really fucking good and he imbues drama into the character that you wouldn't assume from the script even and you wouldn't assume from his talent. Like it, it, it all comes together and it's like us better than the sum of its parts. It's like he taps into something that's like extraordinary. That's probably some of the best stuff I've ever seen from from Jason Bateman. And all the acting is good. Like Joel Edgerton's really good. When I saw the trailer for this initially, I thought, all right, this is going to be one of those like so bad, it's so good, cheesy, like unintentional comedies because it's so, the, the trailer is so like hacky by the books. You know what all the twists and turns are going to be. That's just a way that it's presented in trailer. The actual film, you know, like most films, better than the trailer, but I wasn't ready for how much better. The problem with this film, I did enjoy the vast majority of it. I think it it's better than par. It's better than the average of, of this type of movie, these psychological thrillers, which again, I'll say, this is a dumb guy's psychological thriller. This is like one of those ones where... You know, I, I think like Ryan Gosling was in one of those ones early on in his career. Like it was like a murder by numbers or it was like one of those like. Um, Can I just say that? Do you remember in Sim? No, Ute Tower. Uh-huh. Where <laughs> Where is this going? <laughs> where they had a movie theater and one of the movies in that theater was called Murder by Numbers. And it was like they've murdered him in the shape of a number. And it's like a body is like looks like a seven. That's great. You guys Anyhow. remember Sim Ant? Sim Ant's the best. Which is incredible. But uh, yeah, it does. It's one of those movies where like it, it feels like a movie. You were an ant. You were an ant. It was fun. It's one of those movies where it would be a movie that somebody was like watching in a movie. Like it has that kind of feel. It, it Trust me, it's dumb guy psychological thriller. It's nothing up to the standard of like Cachet or the Vengeance trilogy or even like Fatal Attraction. The problem with the film, and I think this is the case with some films, not all films, but some films, so much rests on the landing, so much rests on the last five minutes that if you bobble that, then it ruins the entire experience for you. Bobble that. I like that. It's a good term. If you bobble that landing, it's like with gymnastics. It's like you can have this, you could be spinning all which ways. You can have this great routine. But if you land for shit, you're going to get downgraded severely. And in the case of a movie like this, if you fuck that up, I like I was ready to give this three and a half out of five. Now it's a two and a half out of five, like one star completely dropped because without giving anything away, because again, it's a very twisty movie. There needed to be more. And maybe there was this in deleted scenes at some point and they got rid of it for time or whatever. But there needed to be more for you to buy the fact that a character would then decide to do what they did in reaction to like the climax of the film. Like you, you can't buy it as is. There needed to be something more for me to go down that path. Whereas like if this movie had been a Korean film, I think because of cultural differences, we would have just taken it for like, oh, you know, it's a different culture. I'm sure maybe like a Korean dude would act that way or something like it's like with, with old boy. That's borderline. What? No, no, no. <laughs> it's like with old boy where like it's almost like it's very surreal and lyrical how the characters decide to do what they do. And because we're not Korean, we're like, all right, well, that's a Korean film. Korean films aren't going for like a sense of like these things taking place in reality. It's like a little bit of like a surreal, like revenge fantasy. So American films can't be surreal. They can. Sim Ant was surreal. Sim Ant was hella surreal. But this film, 
it's too much in the waters of let's make this believable. It then tries to make a character do something that no person would ever do that you really could only buy if they were part of some culture that you had no understanding of whatsoever. And you're like, all right, because most Korean films of this type Characters are doing shit where you're like, well, why would anybody ever do that? But you just kind of roll with it. Is it like soapy? Is that what you mean? Because I feel like there's yeah, a, like it's, what, a that, pop that's Asian a very stuff. Good, yeah. Yes, that's a very good. Yeah, it, it is a little soap opery towards the end to the point where like it's like no person would behave that way after that just happened. Would an ant? An ant could. I don't know too much about ants, but... I would assume that that an ant might actually behave the way that uh, this character did in this film. And on the DVD, there's like an alternate ending. So I would assume they maybe had trouble with figuring out exactly how to end it. But I would like to see more films from Joel Edgerton. Because if, if he feels the same way about the ending that I did, he could probably end up being like one of my favorite filmmakers if given another chance, which I'm sure he will because this one did well to do another film. Maybe he'll have learned from that and his next one is going to be fucking awesome. Did he need like a cachet ending? That's a... Hmm. <laughs> or a sin ant ending where an ant lion gets you and then it's that like really gross picture of you getting eaten and you're all freaked out and you don't want to play again. Did he, you ever put the speech bubbles on? Here's oh the God, thing. Yeah, he either, he really needed uh, <laughs> he needed one more twist in order to sell it Yeah. or he needed to dial it back and keep it really simple. Hmm. That he, was like a hot thing for like a... Yeah, like maybe 10 years ago, there were movies that were like one twist too far. This one needed... It's been a while since we had a one twist too far movie. This one needed one more twist and I could have bought it. That sounds like a really British television series. (laughs) You know, like the the Prestige was one twist too far. Yes. Yeah. But I did like the Prestige. It was fun. For some reason, yeah, this one needed one twist too much or it needed to dial it back a touch. When you guys see this, you're going to understand exactly what I'm talking about. I've kept this like extremely spoiler free. I could have probably gone a little farther with it, but I I don't want anybody to be, even though I didn't like the movie, I don't want anybody to be ruined by it. Maybe reach out to us on Twitter and and Cody will talk to you in depth. I've actually talked to a couple of people who have seen the movie and everybody's had the exact same complaint is that you can't buy that the character would react and do what they did Hmm. because of the climax of the film. It's like the resolution is just, is just botched to shit. Total bobble situation unfortunately but yeah that's my take on the gift well i have to say i watched i watched a movie a couple months ago but the more that i've thought about it the more i really liked it and i'm glad you like something because this has been (laughs) (laughs) just we're just trashing them today i know i'm just looking at the the two of these guys just staring at the floor in sadness right because we're thinking about these shitty movies (laughs) i'm thinking about sim ant i'm not gonna lie to you yeah sim ant was fucking great that was a big part of my childhood but uh, a while ago, I went to go see, on a complete whim, uh, invited by a friend, hey, go see this movie with me. I was like, all right, uh, end of the tour, which is the David Foster Wallace movie that came out recently. That's the Jason Siegel. Jason Siegel yeah. and Jesse Eisenberg, which is based on Dave uh, Lipsky, I think his name was. Yes, and he has a book called Although, Of Course, You End Up Becoming Yourself, which is a book that was about... Um, David Lipsky. I want to say Lipinski, but it's Lipsky. And uh, you can say Lipinski if you want. (laughs) What is that from the Lipinski file? That's from something. Uh, The Lipinski file is the Seinfeld thing. Yes, Seinfeld. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) There's something more satisfying about Lipinski. Lipsky is missing something. So, David, change your name. 
but he's a journalist and he hung out, I guess, with David Foster Wallace and recorded it so that he could write an article about him that I think never came to fruition. But he did write this novel about him. Uh, David Foster Wallace, of course, being the uh, author who has written large, <laughs> winding novels. Infinite Jest, yeah. That I've actually never read. Nobody I, has. <laughs> Nobody's read that book. I have a couple of friends who have. And the person who invited me afterwards, it's not that good. she was like... So I thought you read all these books. I was like, nope, never touched them. <laughs> so I like I went into this totally blind. I actually thought it sounded really dumb, you know, because biopics are just typically disappointing. Like I have to say, I am it's hard. I'm hard pressed to, to think of biopics that I really enjoy, especially about someone I don't even care about. I feel like sometimes that's the saving grace is you're like, well, I really like so and so. And then you see the movie, you're like, ah, it had like that little bit of them. In or it. if you if you've read like a ton of biographies and you're 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 taking what you know, like that may, might be like between the lines in the actual film. Sometimes you can, you can kind of roll with it, you know? See, right. I like biopics about people I like less, hmm. you know, like if I really care about somebody, I usually like the movies about them less because I'm um, a harder critic of them. Hmm. That's interesting. For this one, I just, I just had no expectations essentially. And, and I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was number one. It was very well acted. Shockingly. And, and, you know, well, that's the thing is that this movie just didn't fall into the typical biopic tropes. It didn't like start with the, the like r their rise to fame. You know, I feel like that's always a biopic or their decline or like. Yeah, it's a walk hard template. Exactly. Know? And it and it gets so tired and it's so predictable and it's so boring because you're there. You're like, I know who this person is. Why do I need to see, you know, like how they became who they became? No, like I'd rather see them at their best. Not them like trying to struggle to get to their best, especially not for the millionth time is what it comes down to. Not to say that there aren't good movies in that trope, but for this, it was great because it just starts in the middle of David Foster Wallace's life. Mm. It's a guy who just shows up, who's a fan of his, shows up in his house and says, I'm going to interview for you for like a week. He's, he like lives in his house with him. Uh, and he's also number, he's also a really nice guy. And what's really interesting too about this movie is that because there's all of these recordings of it, and then I believe the screenwriter also went and talked to Dave Lipsky and said, hey, let me like, what, what did you think about this? What did you know? How was your experience? And got some more information that isn't even in his novel and then wrote this book uh, rather and then made this film. So it, it's like you have all this really interesting sort of interpretation. Then plus you get to see it through the eyes of a fan, mm. because that's the other thing that I, you know, I, I really thought was outstanding about this is that instead of trying to show you. David Foster Wallace alone in his house thinking about writing, which is what I feel like a lot of these biopics end up doing. You see him through the eyes of someone who thinks he's a God and then you see his flaws and then you see sort of, you know, what is he, what is he thinking about, you know, as, as an outsider looking in, because I really hate when movies try to pretend like they know what their protagonist who is a real human being is thinking. There's something about that that just like really bugs me. And well, so, it becomes gospel because people see the biopic and they think, all right, you right. Know, I know that now. And then you're, but then you're also, you're someone interpreting somebody else, you know, and that's what makes biographies readable is that you never think like, well, this is, this is what their thoughts are, you know, mm. you know, that's just, there's one step removed that you can observe. If you feel like you're close, you're sitting in the room with that person observing them, but you're not trying to be them. And that's what this movie did so well. You know, you get this portrait of, of uh, David Foster Wallace as, as being, number one, incredibly smart, incredibly interesting, and, you know, insecure, um, a, a loner, uh, troubled. And yet it's like, 
it just doesn't, it never gets pretentious, which is what everyone thinks of when they think of David Foster Wallace. Right. You have uh, Dave Lipsky and you have him, you know, being the insecure guy, expecting a God and not, not getting it and then getting angry at that. So you have these two interesting people kind of dealing with each other, you know, and, and, you know, the, just also the letdown of thinking that, like, like, here's someone who can write this, you know, thousand page novel of, of staggering, towering genius, you know, and yet I think that like, was Dave Eggers that wrote that <laughs> <laughs> and yet here he is also like, you know, struggling with depression and loneliness. And, you know, it's a, it's a great way to just to basically to show your hero as, as flawed and, and real, you know, you don't, he doesn't become this like beautiful movie version of himself. Mm. And I think that also helps is because it, you know, it's, it's his, in his own words, you know, they're using actual conversations that the guys actually had. So that actually also adds a sort of interesting layer to it. Is it the best you've seen Jason Siegel and uh, Eisenberg? I feel like I've seen Eisen Eisenberg do. I really liked him in the double. I thought that was his best acting performance, but he works well in this because it's his the way that Dave Lipsky sounds and acts is kind of what you expect Eisenberg to be like. And mm -hmm. it's kind of, he, he always does play this sort of similar type of insecure, uh, like slightly weaselly guy. And, and that's kind of what he's like in this. So it worked very well. And they both have a good sort of chemistry. And then like halfway through the movie, it, it changes. And then they both kind of get a little bit angry at each other. And so they're dealing with that. But it, it's just interesting to have a, a, a biopic that isn't, it's just not trying to be what it isn't. And it sounds like it's pretty stripped down, right? It's mostly them talking. It, it is. It's sort of like, uh, you know, it's two guys in a room. Do you think it would work as like even like a stage play? Uh, yeah, probably could have. Yeah. I mean, there are more people in it. They mm -hmm. do go more places, but it really has more to do about, yeah, the conversations that they're having than anything else. But, you know, I, I it reminded me in a way of um, Listen to Me, Marlon, which mm -hmm. I also thought was similarly this sort of, movie that that you know marlon brando shot of himself because he recorded all these things for himself he must have known that someone was going to listen to them you know and they're of course edited you know because it's not like everyone just whenever they talk to themselves or it's like his complete stream of consciousness no he's speaking out loud to himself into a recorder yeah. then somebody else took that and interpreted it and cut it and so then you have this like sort of really strange like great portrait of him making a portrait of himself watching a portrait of himself. And that's kind of what end of the tour felt like because it was this recorded conversation between two people interpreted by the person who recorded it and then being interpreted by, you know, a movie maker. Yeah. And yet you still, yeah, that is weird. you still feel like you're getting to some level of truth of at least what it felt like to be in the same room with David Foster Wallace. Well, that's, that's a triumph that that was able to, you know, seep through those channels and still be retained. Yeah. Cause they just, they, they steered away from those tropes, you know, they steered away from like, you know, this is, we need to no, we need more drama right now. You know, like, like it sounds like this is what the complaint was for uh, John's movie was like, instead of like just dealing with like the drama of conversation, they had to throw in a whale eating people. No, it wasn't which, the uh, drama of conversation they were avoiding. It was the drama of human folly. But yeah, it's the same thing. They they uh, they didn't have the guts to make the movie they actually were staring in the face of. So and, they tried to make a different one. Right. And it's funny because apparently people got on the screenwriter for this movie saying that, you know, oh, you made it too dramatic because there's one scene in which David Foster Wallace takes 
David uh, Lipsky aside and says like, hey, I think you're hitting on they, they're both like, they both go out with two female friends of David Foster Wallace. And he turns to, uh, you know, Eisenberg and says, hey, you're, I think you're hitting on my old girlfriend. and It's kind of creeping me out. And he's also, I think, has a long term girlfriend. And so Jesse Eisenberg's like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. And then it's tense from then on. And I guess people thought that that was added in to create drama. But apparently that's what actually happened because he spoke with Dave Lipsky about Mm. it. And he said, yeah. And you can see this a little bit of a shift from then on in these interviews because he kind of like got pissed at him. It's interesting. Yeah, I kind of want to see that one now. I didn't have much interest in it when it came out or what I heard about it. But uh, your take, I think uh, I'll check it out. Yeah, I, you know, it's just, it's funny because you expect it to be so sort of pretentious or obnoxious or whatever it is. I think that a lot of the times these these sort of towering um, literary figures get caught up and tangled up so much in the, their fans, not them specifically, but their works. And then people dismiss it because they hate the type of guy who loves it. Or like, I read somewhere, it was, someone was saying something about how like uh, that um, Infinite Jest is the book that everybody's uh, like ex-boyfriend has unread on their shelf. You yeah, know? I, I know a lot of people who own it, but have not read it. I've seen it in so many apartments. And then you just, and so it just sort of gets dismissed as being, you know, this sort of like pretentious thing that everyone's trying to do and everyone thinks they pretend they like, even though it's a bestseller. And yet, you know, you're sort of hard pressed to find someone who feels like they really love it and can really talk about it. It's a bestseller, but I don't think it's a, a best redder. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I, I think people bought it way more than they actually really finished it or gave it a serious shot. Yeah, I know. It turned me off to it in a way. And like, I'm, I've, I've always been vaguely interested in him as a person. I remember when, you know, the, when it, he came out that he killed himself, which is another interesting sort of layer to, to the whole movie, even though it's not touched upon. You can see depression. You can see this stuff in what he's saying and doing, but there's no stupid dramatic ending like that. Right. You know what I mean? That's like, good. I'm trying to remember the end of it now. Maybe they, they do put mention it. They one of those it. In, in the heart of the sea. Really? They grafted one of those on. Really? Those like ridiculous postscript ones. Yeah. Jeez. The, the whole, the, the end is like one of those, it's the same ending as imitation game where it's like the little text montage oh, no. of like how they went and it ends with Herman Melville and it, Puts this like, and it tries to like coolly understate it. It's like he finally finished the book in 1850. It was published in 1851. Nathaniel Hawthorne called it a work of, you know, whatever, towering genius or whatever. But then, either because they didn't know or they weren't interested in really doing it, they like completely elided over the fact that it was such a disaster that it destroyed his life and his literary career. And nobody actually read it until the 1920s when the modernists bought into it. Like they, they, completely sidestep what actually happened and gave you this like cute postscript ending. That's terrible. About what a, what a triumph Moby Dick was Fuck immediately. That movie. Jesus. Horrible <laughs> fucking movie. Christ. The more you know about it, the worse it becomes, which that's is really a bad like, sign. Yeah. Well, that's what is, that's what this movie did well is that it didn't, you know, it, it show it shows you a real guy. It doesn't try to give you like the, in the, and what's interesting is that it's from the perspective of a fanboy who was let down yeah. because he wanted what he wanted. You know, he wanted this sort of pretentious, like all knowing, all having a voice of God 
like literary genius. And what he got was like this guy that lives alone in the middle of nowhere with two dogs who's like super nice and likes to eat McDonald's, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, (laughs) like that, it's one of these like, you know, kill your idols kind of film, which is interesting in its own way. And then also it just, it shows you a really genuine portrait of somebody who really is, it seems very impressive. Yeah. I want to see this one now. I think I'll check it out. So I would totally recommend it. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with some voicemails. See you soon. Hello, Smug Film fans. Did you know that Smug Film now has a voicemail box? Just call the following phone number. 718395-9711 and leave a question or a comment about the show along with your name, and we may play it on a future episode. Thank you for listening, and now, back to the show. All right, welcome back. We got a couple plugs first before we get into the voicemails, which we have two today, which is pretty exciting. And uh, of course, yes, call in voicemail 718-395-9711. It's the Simant Hotline. Simant Hotline. If, Better we, dead than red. Yeah, <laughs> ask us uh, Simant tips and tricks and cheats, and we'll uh, answer all your Simant questions. Do you guys remember the joke that you would get out of SimCity when you type joke? What'd you get? Yeah. Guy asked me for a quarter for a cup of coffee, so I bit him. <laughs> Wait, walk me through this? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I got it either. You know what it is? It took me a lot. It took me, I feel like it took me like years to understand. Oh, I get it. A bit. Like yeah, a, a coin. Like two bits. Two bits. Oh! I like that. It's a great... Shit, that's a good joke. It's a great fucking joke. That takes you a second. Shit. Yeah. Good I'm on. a grown-ass man. I couldn't figure out the SimCity joke. Thanks, yeah. Maxis. Good on you, Maxis. Um, For all your Maxis needs, yeah, just call yeah, this in. is the Maxis hotline. Any any Maxis game questions, except for like Sim Four or whatever. I don't know anything about that. I could, pro- I know a guy. You know a guy? I could, yeah. I, I can could. outsource it. I can also yeah. tell you a Sims joke. Okay, there we go. Hey wa, hey wa, ma freka ma zika ma lai, a kona ma tika ma lai, a stud la fink, a sil la fink, aha. Plus. <laughs> Jesus, that was that was verbatim. That was pretty good. That was good. Kentolawashna. You know, uh, the Simlish, is it called? I love that they have a name for that yeah. now. <laughs> Did you hear Carly Rae Jepsen just recorded a song completely yes. in Simlish? That, like, I've never wanted to know more about Carly Rae Jepsen than when I heard that. Yeah, that's, uh, it's incredible. <laughs> it has, like, a real, it's like a real language. It has, like, a, a you can do that. Yeah. It's got, like, a syntax and everything. Apparently. I mean, wow. You know, look, after Klingon, what else are you going to learn? So, so uh, what does that joke mean? Is that real sim- simlish? I've already explained one joke today. I can only be. Only, that's all you got. All it's right, tune of, in next week and we'll figure <laughs> out what that means. It sounds like a dirty limerick. It has that kind of like simlish. rhythm to it. Oh, yeah. It must be. Yeah. All right. So uh, we are sponsored, of course, by uh, The Sims. The Sims. No, I wish. That'd be some good money. In Sim our, Island. That was a good one. Sim they had an island? I, wasn't it Sim Isle? It Sim wasn't Isle. Sim Island. It was Sim Isle. What was that other island one that was good? Shit. There was another island one that was like a, it wasn't Maxis. It was like knockoff. It might've been like Sierra or something, but it came out like around the same. It was like Sim Isles, like competitor. It was kind of like how there was Ute Tower and Sim Tower. There was another yeah, island one. Fuck. I wish I could remember the name. If you know what I'm talking about, please leave it on the voicemail or just tweet it at me. I man. remember that one. I think I played that one for years. Oh man. Okay. So, uh, Bobby Slow. Our sponsor, Bobby, Bobby slow, follow him on Twitter at Bobby slow. He, he sponsors the podcast and, uh, we are very grateful to have him doing that. 
And uh, you have a tweet from him that we could read? When doesn't Bobby Slow, at Bobby Slow, Twitter's account, when doesn't this guy have a great tweet for me to tweet at you guys? Please. Uh, How is his name spelled? What is happening? B-O-B-B-Y-S-L-O-W at the tweeter.tweet. Oh, slow, like, really, like, go slow. Go slow. Name is Jay Brunner. His name, yeah, Jay Brunner. Jay Brunner. Let's get that out there. Jay Muscular Brunner. But let's uh, let's let's hear his uh, tweetage because he's uh, he's got a lot of Twitter followers. That guy. Yeah, and he he deserves more. So you guys should follow him. Here's a, here's a tweet just from the other day. Just shot down a Russian jet that entered my safe space. I am just not emotionally ready to deal with Russian jets right now. All right, Bobby Slow. Thank you for your donation. Thank you for uh, making this show possible in uh, in in a monetary capacity where we can stay afloat. What a guy. Good man. And uh, thanks, of course, also to Minor Key Games. Have you guys played those games yet? I'm getting closer and closer every week. You're inching closer to your yeah, computer Yeah, my hand's keyboard. on the mouse now. Oh, yeah. You just got to click that button and download. Super winning game. That's my favorite of theirs. It's two brothers, Kyle and Twin Dave. brothers. Twin brothers. I should add twin brothers. That's the real, that's like the li- money chat. If you like Mario and Luigi, you'll love. <laughs> You're going to love these Pittmans. David and Kyle Pittman. And uh, I like their games. I'm not a game guy. I'm a movie guy. But these games, they feel like the kind of older games that I enjoy. So uh, check them out. I'd like to know out. what they think of Simant. Yeah. Kyle, David, tell us. Leave us a voicemail. Tell us what you think of Simant and, and various other Sim uh, Yeah, the games. whole, the, the, the Maxis Irv. Yeah. The Max that word? Oeuvre. The Maxis Oeuvre. But, the maximum Irv. Uh, check them out. Minorkeygames.com. Super win the game. That's the one I think you should try first. But uh, there's Neon Struct, Eldritch. You have to win the game. That's a precursor to Super win the game. I like Super win the game the best. That took over my life for a couple of days. So minorkeygames.com and also roomfullofspoons.com. Rick Harper's doc on the room. We've been, I don't know if you've been seeing it, but I've been seeing tons of stuff on the Disaster Artist lately, the yeah, upcoming yeah. film. Pretty incredible. I mean, the shots of like... Uh, James Franco and the Tommy Wiseau get up like he looks pretty good and the other side characters look pretty good and uh, I'm really looking forward even more than that I'm looking forward to our boy Rick Harper's documentary on the room which I think has a final cut yeah that came out on on the Faccia Libre I believe or on on the Twitter that said that hey we have the final cut of the movie we're just Faccia Libre Facebook ah okay The Italian version. Of I got Facebook.co.it. I like Faccia Libre. <laughs> That's what I use. Anyway. <laughs> he made Nacho Libre? Yeah. It's cool. I didn't know that. It's a yeah, pretty Beck good did movie. the soundtrack. It was great. Yeah. Which you still haven't seen Nacho Libre, right? Despite it having a Beck soundtrack. I know. I got to see it. I really, that was like, I wanted to see it in theaters. It never happened. And then it just hasn't happened. It's a really, since. it's a really good soundtrack. But uh, yes, Room Full of Spoons. Final cut? Yes, really? That's what I, I read, cool. and hopefully I'm not misremembering that, but yeah. I, I believe that they're making some moves. Stuff's going to come out, and especially in conjunction with a disaster artist, it's going to be awesome. I can't wait, and I think we're in it, actually. I think we're, Yeah, we're, we're, we're in the trailer. Yeah, we were in one cut of it. I don't know if we're in the final cut, but uh, we were we We're, were definitely in it getting some... cut out, but we're on IMDb for if it. If anyone's going to get cut out, it's the people that actually have nothing to do with the, the making of the room, which is us. <laughs> You know, we're, we're going to be on the cutting room floor if anybody's going to be, but hopefully we did, we did still make it. And that'd be interesting. We're on IMDb either way. Hey, there, so we there go. you go. That's fun. So uh, roomfullofspoons.com, check it out and uh, enjoy 
looking at the trailer and seeing our beautiful faces and hearing our beautiful voices and uh, enjoy. So uh, here's a voicemail from a fan. Let's listen to that. Yo, Smug Film. This is Andy Anderson. Only recently discovered the Smug Film podcast and the site, but already become a huge fan. You can find me at uh, Twitter under the name uh, Max Punk, P-U-N-C-K. That's my stage name for the Utah-based punk band, The Liddells. You can check us out at liddells.bandcamp.com. I've also been a writer, film critic for a few different publications over the years. Anyway, I was just calling in response to your conversation in the last episode about uh, Bond movies and particularly about Spectre. And I got to say, I, uh, I adamantly disagree with uh, John D'Amico about uh, the quality of Spectre. I think it's a really great Bond film. I think Skyfall is still like a lot better. I think Skyfall is the best Daniel Craig film. But um, I don't know. I just think I just think Spectre was like a really, you know, given the trajectory of the Daniel Craig series of Bond films, I think it was the right time to kind of, you know, shamelessly return to the formula, even if you risk erring on the side of it being too formulaic. I agree. I don't think it. I don't think it's necessarily campy. In fact, I think Skyfall, in a lot of ways, is even campier than Spectre. But it was very nonsensical, but in like the best way possible. I think it really captures the kind of aura of nonsense that is in like the later Connery Bond films, like like Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, and like some of like the good Roger Moore Bond films. I think there's that like element of absurdity and nonsense that is like pulled off that the Bond series pulls off through the charm and wit and style of the thing. And, and I think Spectre just like really, really nailed that. And I think like a lot of the negative reviews that Spectre has received are kind of based on the idea of like, well, it, it wasn't as good as Skyfall, but I think had it been just another Skyfall, then people would have complained that it like, oh, well, it's just Skyfall all over again. So it's kind of a catch-22 there. Like, I don't think there was, given the, the unprecedented critical success of Skyfall, I don't know where else they would have gone, but kind of to, like, return to the formula. I do agree, though, with you, John, that, the, like, there were moments when the film felt like it was just, like, a series of sequences, like it was just footage. But, again, I think that a lot of Bond films, even the successful ones, have that feeling where, like, like, what is a Bond film if not, like, just a series of sequences thrown together? But, again, I think that, like, Bond films get away with that because it's the sheer style and the wit and charm of them, and I think that's, that's what, again, what sets them apart. Anyway, yeah, thanks for all you folks do, and, again, I think, you know, especially for Jenna and Cody, I think, you know, you may hate Spectre. You may watch it and be like, that was shit, Andy, steer this wrong. But I think it's at least worth checking out. Anyway, thanks again. That's all for me. Bye. All right. Thank you, Andy. And I'm surprised that Andy Anderson isn't like your stage name. Because it's got that like a double first name quality that like you want out of like a, a musician, you know, like uh, and they're like a guy like Steve Stevens or what am I thinking of? There's a bunch of I feel like there's a bunch of like uh, metal guys in like the 80s. Who had like double first name? Oh, I was thinking about like people in the '60s and like boy bands. Yeah, a little bit of that too. 
there are all these 80s metal ones that I'm just forgetting on the spot. But uh, Andy Anderson, I think you should use your just your actual name as your as your stage name. I don't think you need to be Max Punk. I think you just be Andy Anderson. I think that's fun, right? It's it's punk in its own way. Yeah, it is punk in its own way. I actually really like that voicemail. That was like a really nice, thoughtful voicemail. Yeah, dude. He fucking, yeah. <laughs> what was that, like four minutes? <laughs> I, so I appreciate it, Yeah, dude. I'm super into that. And and it's really, it's encouraging to hear because I have not yet seen it still. And uh, I'll, I might miss it in theaters, but I'm definitely going to, I'm definitely going to check it out. Yeah. So. I, uh, I don't, I don't agree, but I, I do like that voicemail that was considerate. Um, I didn't see any of the wit or the charm in this one that he was talking about. And I also don't think this was a return to the formula. This felt like a return to the, you know, like born identity just came out and we're desperate to find a new formula, 2000s neutral formula. What really bothers me about Spectre among everything else is that it's the fourth one in a row where, you know, Bond has gone rogue and we're expected to, to get all caught up in, well, is he going to get back into, into MI6 or whatever? Cause like, in the Craig world, he's never even been a spy. He's just always been like a rogue, crazy person. Yeah. Which is fine, except they keep resetting setting it every time and keep giving you this like, oh, maybe this time, you know, and, and it, it just feels hollow. It's like House, the television show. Yeah. It, that, it felt that like is a it good was, comparison, yeah. It, it felt like it was trying to follow Skyfall again a little closely, which is interesting because he said sort of the opposite, but I felt like it was um, trying to recalibrate and do like a, a darker Skyfall. How do you feel about the thing you said about people would have been complaining if it had been, you know, just a rehash or it had to well, be Well, I think it was or, just a rehash yeah. of And he's Skyfall. complaining. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, basically, I, I think it was not a return to the, the formula of the Connery movies at all, which the formula of that was somebody's doing something mysterious and uh, evil and Connery is going to track him down across the the world with the full weight of mi6 behind him and a lady on each arm yeah you know there's like a little bit of that in this but mostly what this was was um the 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 post-born identity formula which is agent goes rogue and is angry and you know they're trying to get him back and mad that he's killing people and maybe bond is as bad as the bad guys and like i don't care about that anymore yeah you can't do that four times in a row that's too many times yeah, I'm I'm not feeling any pull to see it in theaters. I'll probably check it out on on the old television. But, because uh, of this voicemail, I'm gonna watch it. Really? Totally. Because All right, I got, Andy. I, I got All right, Max Punk. Yeah, you want someone Punk, over? Andy Anderson telling me that I'm gonna like it, and I got Johnny the Meeks Meeks telling me I'm gonna Don't hate ever call it. Me that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll see it on TV. I'm not gonna see it in theaters, but. Uh, you know, I, the reason I'm not going to see it in theaters is because I don't like when people have alliteration and then and then just dismiss it. You know, <laughs> if you're if you're if you're born with if you're blessed with alliteration as as I am, yeah, and I take pride in my alliteration. If you if you are given that gift, Cody Calhoun Clark, <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. And uh, if you if you have that gift and you throw it away, I think that's a that's a very sad thing. The Giorno D'Amico. Yeah, I'm DiGiorno. DiGiorno <laughs> to me. <laughs> yes. I'm DiGiorno. I'm DiGiorno. Yes, yes. All right. So we have another uh, voicemail. I don't know why I zipped into that. But That's I, the only voice you can use right yeah, now. Yeah. But uh, another voicemail. And uh, let's hear that one. Okay. So my question is this. I'm Paul, by the way, from LA. And I'm a listener. And uh was trying to figure out what the hell was the... A Very Merry Christmas special. I watched it over the weekend. I thought it really sucked. 
but it seemed to have a New York sensibility, and you guys are all in New York. So I'm curious what your take on that thing is, because it seems like Sofia Coppola made it specifically for you and your crew, or people who are your types. I'm sorry, I don't mean to, you know, paint a broad brush here or anything like that. You guys are probably all very, uh, you know, your own people, I guess, individuals. But uh, I don't know, it just seems like uh, she sort of made this for an East Coast and out here, Echo Park, Silver Lake, and maybe Austin, Texas, and who knows where else all the bearded hipsters hang out. That type of audience. I love Bill Murray. I love Stripes and Ghostbusters and where the Buffalo Rome and Scrooge and the Man Who Knew Too Little. I even love that one. But I don't think uh I don't think this one uh I don't think this one did the job. It didn't do the Murray. It didn't have any Murray magic. You know what I'm saying? As a matter of fact it did quite the opposite. It uh made me lose my my love for Christmas almost. Anyways, really curious want to hear what you guys think of that. I know it's not a movie, but it is kind of a movie. It's not very long. It won't take you long to watch it, but uh, if you were my friend and you were asking me what I thought about it, I'd say it sucks and uh, you're going to want to punch yourself in the face after it's over. All right. Hey, uh, keep up the good work. Bye. <laughs> That's Paul, our biggest fan. All right, thank That's you, Paul. A lot to take in, man. That is a lot to take in. I think. Can I just say real quick? I okay. really think Paul should hang out with Richard Carpala. Oh my God, they need to do tag team voicemails together. Yeah, you guys have a really similar thing going on, and you both live in LA, so yeah, they need to do a little like uh, you know, they they are the comedy duo of our our voicemails. They they have a very similar sensibility, but I don't think it'll necessarily cancel each other out. No, I think it'll really complement. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful thing, but hey, thank you, Paul, for the uh, the uh, voicemail. I think I'm the only one who's seen uh, very Murray Christmas yet. You guys haven't seen that one yet. I'd rather be in a fucking ditch. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> well, John hasn't seen it, but uh, Jenna, have you, you haven't seen it? No, because I'm 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 with John in the ditch kind of. I I don't like <laughs> Sofia Coppola, and I'm sick of Bill Murray, and well, it's such a sad thing to say. Well, I felt both those things, and I watched it anyway. Because uh, I was just curious. Bill Murray became much less funny when he noticed that everybody liked him, I think. Oh, yeah. And it's just, there's a weird expectation now. And now he's yeah. just doing what people want him to do. And yeah, he, he was always like hammy, but now he got like mad, like late Chevy Chase hammy. Well, the take the, that I have about it, I think uh, the hipsters kind of hijacked Murray. You know, they, oh, yeah. they kind of claimed they him. They didn't hijack him. They jacked him. And he really liked it, you know? They're still jacking him, and they, it's they just, are st- he is getting jacked by the hipsters because now he's dating for years. He's dating Jenny Lewis now. She's really she's jacking him. Wow. Yeah, they, it's his that's a whole generation just jacking up a storm over there. Everybody's jacking Murray, <laughs> but uh, he, the next that's the next special. I he was kind of like a free agent that had was a really good hitter or whatever. I don't, why am I talking about sports? I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> But he, uh, you know, he was a free agent for a while and he was in Lost in Translation and Rushmore and whatever. And like people started realize, you know, people, the hipsters realized his value and they kind of claimed yeah, they started him. pounding that meat. They pounded that meat. They claimed him. And, and then, then it, it moved on to like bro culture now. Every yeah. bro has like a Bill Murray shirt. Here's the thing. The too. distance between bros and hipsters is not as far as people think. Oh, it's I not think. at all. Not at all. Yeah. 
But he, they like the idea of Bill Murray. You right. know, they like the image of Bill Murray's face. They like, and that's how he's used in Very Merry Christmas. He's just kind of like, he's scenery. It's like, you know, the whole cliche of like, you know, I was in the school play and I played the tree or whatever. Bill Murray's playing the tree in this one, except he has lines. That's beautiful. That was elegant, wasn't it? <laughs> it really was. That was that was very off the top of the dome, but I am proud of, of that metaphor. How'd you get that and all I could come up with is they're pounding the Murray. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, yeah, so he's not utilized in a a large capacity. He's just kind of floating through. He's singing songs here and there. I did not like it. I'd give it like... Can he sing? I didn't know he sang anything. He's not terrible. Star Wars. He's not terrible. I thought that was... A couple um, songs are out of his range. Steve Martin. A couple songs are out of his... No, it was Murray. It's Auto Train. A couple songs out of his range, but the ones that are in his range, he does a pretty good you know, rendition of. It's not great, but it's it's not, you're not groaning, you're not, you know, checking your watch. But uh, it's a shame because I think it could have been way more, I, I totally get what he says about no Murray magic. I think if anything that, that this was missing, it, it was Murray magic. It's basically like if you took Murray from Lost in Translation and we're like, all right, we're giving you a Christmas special. You know, it's very much that like kind of... The half-assed whiskey commercial? Yeah. What was the last comedy with... Murray magic in it. I'd Ooh. say maybe Scrooged. Like it's been a long time. I think. What about Bob or? Uh, yeah, I like that yeah. much. Oh, I love that's top ten favorite movies for I me. I roll with Scrooged hard though. See, that's the one I don't like. Which is weird because I don't like Christmas movies, but Scrooged that yeah. one works on me. I don't know. So yeah, it was. When, uh, what do you got? What do you it's, got? It's got for a, Christmas movies. No, for oh for Murray. Last, for the last funny Murray movie. I'm. I have. I'd have to specifically IMDb funny. It. Yeah. Yeah, because like he he had some pretty good dramas. I mean, I'll get him lost in translation. Yeah, and I like his work in, in Wes Anderson movies. I think he's he's good in that stuff. But as far oh, as like, yeah, I'd say actually, um, um, the Wes Anderson movie we just we were just talking about, Life Aquatic. Yeah, I no, think he that, is, that's my he favorite. Is pretty funny in that of him, and and it's been. I didn't like that movie that much. Oh, he was in Monuments Man. That was a terrible movie. Yeah, everybody like all the all the Murray heads should be forced to watch that and Hyde Park on Hudson for the rest of their <laughs> life. Yeah. And uh, it's it's star studded. It's you know people pop in, not really like huge stars, but like the people you assume would pop in, like Jason Schwartzman and like Rashida Jones. That sounds mad seventies, a little bit, like well, a Sophia fading star. Coppola's seventies wannabe. Well, here's the thing. I think, you know what I mean, like the Christmas special for the fading star. Like yeah. that's such a fucking seventies thing. I think they felt that having Murray in it in that template was funny enough. I think hipsters just a laugh at Murray just existing and yeah. they don't need him to do actually funny things. They, they just need him to be there and they're well, like, it's, Oh, it's Murray. It's great. It's the whole story that, that like, you know, whatever that you keep hearing that, like I was in the elevator with Bill Murray mm-hmm. and then he tickled me and told me who's going to believe you and then left. Yeah. And you I hear like so many versions, <laughs> you hear so many versions of that same story. And it's like, I, like if it even happened once, like there's no way that he's doing this every time he sees someone yeah. like, that guy has a life. He must. So yeah, it's it's underwritten. It's underperformed. By I saw design. him at a Radio Shack once. Yeah. In uh, yeah, in um, Palisades Park Mall. He was buying batteries. He didn't tickle nobody. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's my favorite Bill Murray story now because I <laughs> yeah. I totally believe it. I trust you. And every other Bill Murray story of meeting him, it's like, oh, he crashed our wedding and he gave this beautiful speech. And right. The, 
You know, I hate that shit. That's all. And, uh, he, he just bought some batteries. I don't even. They looked like they were double or triple A. You know, standard batteries. Nothing even that. Not even like, not a, like a nine volt. No. Not like a watch battery or anything cool. Right like, what are you doing with that? Yeah. Just standard batteries. So yeah, Remote it's uh, for the people for the hipster crowd. Which I don't know why he's calling us that. You know, I yeah, I that's our of, biggest. Yeah, fan. that shit was noted. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're putting that on your file as far as uh, you as a person, sir, Paul. But uh, I just called him Sir Paul by accident. I meant McCartney. S- yeah, <laughs> I meant Sir. Go back to wings, Paul. shithead. But uh, <laughs> back to your yeah, fucking Paul. wings, bullshit. Yes, yeah, Sir Paul. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's just a, if you're if you like if you see Murray and you start laughing just by Murray existing, you're gonna love this thing. But as for me, who wants to see him actually do work and wants something a little extra. I need, I kind of need more than that. You know, it, it wasn't terrible. I didn't want to just stop watching it even during parts that were a little grating, but it wasn't, it's not, it's not going to be a Christmas classic. It's not anything anybody needs to see more than once. I think, you know what I have to say? The only, I, and I don't watch Christmas stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's not a, th- a thing for me, but like the only Christmas television special that I really enjoyed was the Stephen Colbert Christmas. You liked that? I loved it. He did I, a Christmas special? It was really funny. And he just, he had good, it was like these really silly songs, like the John Legend Nutmeg song. I think that made the entire special I for really me. didn't I like that one at all. Christmas singing. I, it's the worst part of the holiday for me is it's really, when celebrities haul themselves out of their coffins and sing you a fucking song. Like this one's great. Everybody was sitting there waiting for that. Because the whole thing's an innuendo for getting a blowjob. That's why it's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I barely remember it. I didn't. I didn't like it too much. I. Uh, I. I like uh, the Pee Wee Christmas special. I can. I can still watch that one because I love the the enthusiasm that he has about like. You know, like uh, the people that are doing the music, like um, like Charo comes on, and it's like he, it's like a Jor El, Superman's dad. <laughs> no, Char- that's awesome. Yeah, he has. I a, thought he died in the destruction of Krypton. There's Charo, and there's I think Little Richard appears and stuff, and it's like it's oh, all, I could get in on Little Richard. It's hard, all these, homie. It's all this like enthusiasm where it's like you you don't have like the the huge names of the time, but wasn't you're Grace the same... Jones in that? Is that the, yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. clip that's going around right, on right, Facebook right. right now? It's really great. I don't think I've ever seen it. I haven't seen it in a number of years, but I, I'm really itching to see it again because Pee Wee's great. Yeah, Pee Wee's Pee Wee's wonderful, and uh, yeah, I mean just the Murray Christmas thing. I think it has three stars on uh, on Netflix, and uh, I think that's about what it should have. I think it's. It's okay. That it has moments, and it's, <laughs> that's three out of ten. Is your okay? No, three out of five. Okay, <laughs> three, five, nine, three out of ten. But uh, yeah, it's it's just fine. It's you'll watch it once. You'll enjoy parts, and you'll move on with your life. Unless you're, yeah, people like, just like to see people. Like you yeah. know, it's like see that's a that's a big thing of it too. It's like oh look, it's yeah, Tina Fey. I don't, Fey. Get that. I don't need like, to see anybody. You know, like Tina Fey is really <laughs> funny. But like, I, if I want to hear her say something that's funny, or yeah. I want to hear yeah, her it's do like the comedy. Oscars. It's like having to watch the Oscars, or right? Something where yeah. like I you're expected see... to get excited because oh, that guy was in. I don't care. Just shut up. Just stop. Yeah. I want to see know? people work. I want to see people do something. Right. Yeah. They got to earn their paycheck. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, watch the Colbert singing the nutmeg song with John Legend because that's the best fucking. Watch. Movie. Definitely the, not going to do that. Watch the Pee Wee really Christmas. There's, there's no world where I'm going to do that. I'll tell you that right now. Pee Wee Christmas. Watch that one instead. Watch like, Scrooge. Scrooge was good. Yeah, watch you know? an actual Christmas movie. Richard Donner did it. You know, some some heavy hitters in Scrooge. Home Alone is good. 
I mean, watch the classics. You could you could do that. I don't know about it. I, I never liked Home Alone when I was a kid. What was your issue with it? I don't know. It just didn't catch me. And I haven't seen it as an adult, so maybe I would like it now. But like, did nothing for me when I was a kid. Hmm. That's a that's a movie I I probably watched. Lethal Weapon, one of the great unsung Christmas movies. Yes, everyone always goes to Die Hard, but you're a, you're a Lethal Weapon Oof, man. Lethal Weapon's great. You know why? Because my Christmases were in the um, tropic south. So I like Lethal Weapons World where it's Christmas, but everyone's in t-shirts and shorts. Mm. Like that feels like Christmas to me. Yeah. And uh, also, you know, recent film Tangerine, which we'll go into greater detail in an upcoming episode, but Tangerine, very good movie and a Christmas movie, unexpected Christmas movie. There you go. People putting in work in that one. That's right. People definitely putting in work. Not just watching Bill Murray get a hand job for 50 minutes. (laughs) I think that's probably the exact runtime too. And that, that is what happened in the film. Yeah, but just one long, dry hand job, <laughs> 50 minutes. Oof. And uh, thank you all for listening. I, you guys have any, uh, any uh, uh, last thoughts? <laughs> I'm still dealing with that last thought, if I'm being honest. No yeah. cocoa, no cloves, no vanilla, no vanilla, no mace. The only residue I want you wiping off your face is my nutmeg. Oh, that is pretty clever. It's fucking great. Maybe I do need to see that again. All right. Thank you all for listening. See you soon. Bye-bye.